He's back. Here's Jenny. <laughs> welcome back, my friend. It's been a while. But, well, welcome to the listeners. They've been with us this whole time, but you, Brad, from the UK, British Brad, are gracing us with your presence once more. Hey, what can I, I, I'd like to say I've been, you know, deep in meditation in the outback and, you know, taking in thoughts and being in touch with the universe and life. But no, I've just been dealing with shit and trying to stay alive like the rest of us. So my apologies, listeners. I know, I know a few of you have messaged to say, you know, what, what's Flash done? Is he buried you in the garden and covered your body in lime and put you in a shallow grave or what's going on? But now I'm back. I'm alive. This is me. Um, and it's good to be back, to be honest. I'm not going to lie. I've, 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 I've missed I've missed you, Flash, but ultimately I've missed the listeners a lot more. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, fair. This is why we do it. I was going to say, how can we do like a, um, uh, you know, a, a proof for the listeners that you're proof this wasn't life. pre-recorded yeah proof of life how do we do that audio well so i would just say who's the president of the united states who the fuck knows <laughs> good answer yeah the, the last i checked biden was heading it nudging ahead in georgia and pennsylvania so maybe maybe by the end of this podcast we could have a quick check we could be the first to announce it Flat. yeah maybe yeah, um we could be the first. well good so your proof of life there puts you at somewhere between uh thursday night <laughs> to friday anywhere between tuesday election day to uh yeah well you said nudging ahead in in georgia and pennsylvania so that indicates something so there you go well so brad is alive and well as of november 5th or 6th well and you know as we've we've talked about before you know if, if we adopt the donald trump approach to things we should just stop counting the listeners now flash and declare ourselves as the most popular podcast in the world i hereby declare yeah we are the most popular yeah, yeah. stop counting stop counting we are the most popular podcast <laughs> that's that's all you need to know listeners so to our, to our listeners that were once a select bunch you're not so select anymore because now you know there yeah. are billions of you so um yeah, yeah. but if you're one of the early adopters you know you've always got that you're always cool well i was listening to them back when they were shit mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's right podcasts like you've never heard before like you've never seen before exactly well you've certainly never seen it <laughs> definitely not no all right well not to hammer on the subject that everyone is already probably sick of Let's move to the second subject that everyone's already sick of. Oh, literally, I got with, or sick with. We're both we both we're both are respectively in in locked down ish states. We are, yeah. And uh, so us in the UK, a lot more than it sounds like. Basically, you can still have a gangbang there, groups of ten in different households, whereas. Berlin, Berlin spoke. They were not going to let their their weird sex clubs and uh you know freaky liberal germ east german lifestyles they weren't gonna let that go so you know merkel had to cave and just say you know it's part of the culture bang away fair enough uh, as long as you're wearing a mask <laughs> well which a lot of people in those clubs would naturally wear masks normally made a right 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 Right. Doesn't have to be, you know, cloth. It can cover your whole face. It could have a zipper on the front, you know, you know whatever. Normally with a leash or a lead around your neck. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's very progressive over there in Berlin. Yeah. Um, no, there's some, I was, I, I did want to maybe avoid that for our, our reunion. Like we could go back to the good old days of just talking about random kind of cool stuff. But yeah. uh, there we, was a couple of things. It's like Ebola rather than this coronavirus shit, but you know. Yeah. 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 Which uh, there's still Ebola going on. So we'll save the Ebola update for the next one. But um, because yeah, Corona update, there is some interesting news that like literally just broke this week. Uh, and you may have heard of it. The the mink strains, mink corona, Dan- Danish yes. mink. It sounds so wrong on so many levels. Danish mink corona. It's uh, if you didn't know, the Danes are one of the biggest exporters of mink fur. There is so a lot of mink farming going on in uh, Denmark, also the Netherlands, which we'll get to. Um, but there was a, a mutated strain of corona has appeared in human populations in Denmark that's believed to have started in humans, gone to mink, and now come back. That's right. It's come back Ooh. from the mink to the humans. Um, and now the, Denmark has put a quarter million people in the north of the country on a pretty strict lockdown because of this. Okay. And they're set to kill 17 million mink. What? The mink call has begun. Oh, so this started in humans. Mm. Went yeah, it's corona. Yeah, yeah, so it started in humans, or potentially in bats, you, you know, depending on what theory you buy into. But basically, we're saying it started in humans, it's gone to mink, mm. and it's back into humans. Coming back around again. And we're culling how many mink? 17 million. How many humans are we culling? Because surely if we cut down on the humans at the first start of that chain, the mink don't get infected, and therefore the humans don't get infected. Yeah. So but fuck those mink. Well, they should have. They should have kept it to themselves. Once we gave it to them, they should have just, you know, kept it to themselves. Well, they just thought they were sharing the gift. These kind humans have shared this with us. We'll just pass it on. It's like pass the parcel. You don't pass it on till the music stops. Or by look at the mink. We're gonna die anyway. Well, the they, humans they, are gonna die. Everyone's gonna die eventually. <laughs> Flash. That is nature. That's the way it works. Right. Martin Donald These, Trump, who I think actually technically died at least four days ago, but is like weakened at burn, is still being kept alive on a podium. <laughs> yeah. Could be, could be. Okay. Unverified reports. So Twitter no, don't, don't so no ban us. No being cold is what you're saying. No, not yet. Um, and yeah, it's not like these mink were going to be adopted out to, uh, you know, loving families well, around the world. In a coat format. Yeah, in a coat or a hat or some yeah. kind of a belt or, you know. Mink? Um, I don't know, scarf? <laughs> Don't they have those wraps that you put around? You know, you see, like, with the head still on it, and it's like, you know, it's like a shawl kind of thing. Maybe that's with foxes. Maybe that's with foxes. I love the idea of a mink belt, though. Yeah. (laughs) With the teeth, like, clasp on. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. The buckle, you have just two mink clasped the teeth. That would be actually kind of cool. Yeah, if nobody's thought of that, that's quick. Get that in the post, send it to ourselves. That's our idea, Flash. This Yeah, yeah, patentpending.com's gone, so we can't use that as a source of income anymore. We need to That's right. mink belts. That's mink belts. Yeah. Mink belts. Mink belts. I'm trying to think of a clever name, but I don't got it. Anyway, uh humans will not be called yet. Motherfucker. Mink will be called. Seventeen million of them. Um how many coats is that? 
fuck, I don't know. But those mink farmers are not happy, let me tell you that. Really? Um, yeah, yeah. How can they yeah. not be happy? So basically, we're going to kill 17 million mink. Isn't that what they're farming? No, they don't. They don't get to use the. They don't get to use the the fur. These these are these bodies need to be incinerated. It's a cull. The uh, mm, yeah, okay. they don't. It's not like oh, we just got to speed up production here, boys. It's like no, these these are just gone. So it's a real waste, really, when you think about it. Yeah. And. We're kind of deviating from the plot here, but sorry, sorry. Um, <laughs> well, I've forgotten how a podcast worked. It's been so long. Okay, so let me clarify then. Mm-hmm. So we're incinerating seventeen million mink. Correct. We're not culling any humans. Correct for now. But what are we doing with mink coats? Because surely we can combine the two. So what if we incinerate humans wearing mink coats? Surely that improves the overall survival of the population. Is that not how it works? I don't know. This I, I'm not an economist. What do I know about these things about supply and demand or something? Maybe we should be buying mink. You know, maybe mink's going to be a real rare commodity, and we should be buying them up now. Well, it is now if they're culling 17 million of them. Jesus. That's right. And as I will get to, there was already a big mink cull uh, earlier in the year because of Corona. So anyway, just the way you say mink coal sounds so rude, (laughs) but at the same time, a massive turn on, I've got to say, (laughs) tell me, tell me about the mink coal, the mink coal. So it's happening in the, in these Northern municipalities in Denmark where mink farming is a big thing. Um, So jumping to the humans, uh, it's, like roughly 280,000 people are put on this pretty strict lockdown because of this. Um, so no sport and cultural activities. Uh, public transportation has been completely stopped. The regional borders have been closed. So no one's allowed in and out. Um, only people with like the, you know, critical jobs, as we'll say, firefighters, things like this, um, police officers, all that. They're the ones that are still working. Everything else is, is basically shut down. Um, all because this, there's, I think it's like four different strains now of Corona they've found that have, they're mink related. Um, so, uh, where are we, where are we at? So they've known about these strains for a while. Um, like, like I think since June, they've seen 214 people in Denmark with some kind of mink related strain. So it's not like overly surprising that, you know, these exist. Um, Earlier in the year, as I alluded to, the Netherlands and Spain, I think in the U.S. too, where there's some mink farming, um, there's been a bunch of culls, mink culls, because of COVID. So they've either found strains um, that that were from humans in the mink, and then they were like, we got to deal with this. Like, we don't want it to jump back or we don't want it to, to mutate or whatever. So we're going to kill the mink right now. Or they've seen um, outbreaks associated with these mink strains in the farmers and the villages that do these, that are, you know, in the areas where this farming has gone on. And apparently uh, coronavirus, this coronavirus is, the mink are quite susceptible to it. And I mean, we've heard other reports of other animals as well, cats, dogs, yeah. getting it. Um, and from cats and dogs, as far as we know, the risk is still low uh, there. But mink, and I believe their group of animal, their family is they're called mutilids or mustelids or something like this. Uh, yeah, 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 mustelids. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm, I, 
don't have on hand what else is part of that family. Um, maybe weasels? I don't know. I think, uh, yeah, I want to say off the top of my head, weasels, ferrets, that type of yeah. shebang. So they, the at least in mink for sure, um, the, the virus mutates quicker. So for whatever reason, something about the mink mu- immune system, the biology of the mink, uh, the virus seems to just be mutating faster in uh within those populations and in that larger family they're susceptible to these viruses um so that's where the 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 worry is uh there was like a a vet in the netherlands who was involved in their mink cull uh because of the strains they found there um and he reported that yeah the, the the it appears to mutate quicker there so the longer that you have it circulating amongst the mink the more chances it has to evolve to something more dangerous, right? If it's mutating faster, it's sort of a random, not random, the immune system's exerting pressure on it, you know? Um, but that's the worry. That's that's why they would kill all the mink. And that's what they did in the Netherlands and uh, Spain. And like I said, in the US, I believe there was one as well, because they're just like, look at, we see that it's in there. It's come from humans, so it's already the human-adapted strain. If it gets into mink and then mutates some other crazy way, it could come back, and that it may or may not be more deadly. We don't know, but why take the chance? So they killed a bunch of the mink. Um, and so, like I said, this is in Denmark, they've seen these four or five strains uh, since January, 214 people since, not January, sorry, since June. Um, have been, they've, they've identified these strains, so they've been monitoring this situation. But the reason that it's now gotten to the serious point is 12 people have contracted this mink strain of the virus that carries some worrying mutations in the all-important um, spike protein that we've uh, all heard of. Yeah, yeah, The spike protein that the virus, it's essential. The spike protein is essential to the virus getting into the cell. Um. And there's no evidence that we know of right now that the strain is more deadly. So that's not the concern. And I wish we had more information to share, but it was in Danish. And I don't speak <laughs> Danish. <laughs> I would say drink more and then you speak fluent. Danish. Yeah, it's similar. Like there's some similarities to German I can pick out, but that's about it. And I mean, yes, I know I could run it through the translator. I know don't tweet at me being like, oh, have you heard of Google Translate? Yes, I have. But I also have you know, other things to do with my time. Well, if and, also, if you'd have paid attention to the Danish lessons that we used to have with the rest of the AVP group. Ooh, shout out to the AAVP group. You know wow. who you are. Yeah. You know, and, you know, we had, we had Danish lessons for quite a number of weeks slash months there. So you, yeah, we basically did. saying you didn't pick up on detailed genetic immunology uh, lessons from those basic lessons of how to count to one to 10 in Danish. I'm going to tell you right now, I was not paying attention to any of those lessons. My apologies. It's good that we clarified that important, Uh important lesson for all, all of us there. I will not invest my time to speak a language that less than what? 20 million people speak. There you go. Shots fired, Denmark shots fired. Um, so yeah, so there's no the the institute, the big health institute there. I think it's called the Serum Serum Institute, Staten Serum Institute in Denmark. 
they've, you know, they've been isolating the strains. They've been working with the strains in the lab. This is the sort of national lab there. Um, they put out a report. It's in Danish. And none of this is published in the literature yet. This is just like on the fly. Their lab is putting out uh, information uh, as they get it. Um, but so there's these 12 people that have this strain. There's no evidence that it's more deadly. So the people are fine, and, you know, in terms of the people that have it. The worry comes to the mutations in the spike protein could alter the way that a vaccine works. Because a lot of the vaccines being developed are targeting the spike protein. So the vaccine recognizes or the vaccine presents you know, some portion of the spike protein to the immune system. That's what the immune system rec recognizes and the antibodies uh, are built on that to, to target that. So if there's a mutation in there, um, the vaccine could be less effective in these people. So okay. if we have this strain and it spreads around through the population, you could have a section of the population that the vaccine doesn't work as well for or doesn't work at all. Um, and there is, I saw one report uh, in The Independent, which I believe is a UK news newspaper. Yes. You're yeah. welcome. Um, and they said, and I couldn't find, again, I couldn't find the source for this. I went to the Serum Institute lab website and just did a quick search and couldn't find the original report. I did find one report in Danish, so maybe it's in there. But they, The Independent reported that there was preliminary lab tests that showed that the antibodies um, were responding weakly to this particular mink strain. It's called cluster five, this strain <laughs> five or I wonder where you were going with that then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's called cluster as, oh God, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> this, has got, this has got us the explicit rating on iTunes. Here we go. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, cluster five. So apparently the antibodies again, that normally would go against SARS-CoV-2 um, don't react as strongly to this strain. So this is where the concern was, and this is why the Danish government has taken such a really yeah. strict uh, you know, uh, approach to this. And that's what they're all saying. The government is all saying is like, look, we're being safe, rather safe than sorry here. There's like, again, there's no evidence that it's more deadly. We don't really know how this would affect a vaccine because we don't really know what the vaccines are like yet. Um, but they're just like, let's just fuck those mink, get rid of them, try and nip this in the bud. And, you know, sorry, 280,000 Danes, you ain't going nowhere. So uh, that's that's where this mink strain is at. And I've, I saw it flying around on Twitter. I saw these different news stories and stuff about it. So I thought it'd be interesting to to bring it up anyway and just like let people know what's going on because maybe they see it. And of course, you see something like this uh, and the reaction and stuff and the, the initial thought might be is like, oh shit, it's mutated. Now we're going to get like super mink corona and it's going to be even worse and all this. There's no reason to think that right now. They've got it locked down. So hopefully this strain doesn't spread. The worry would be that it would be it would be a vaccine resistant strain. Again, that's a big assumption that the vaccine is, you know, works in the first place. We don't know. Oh, yeah. Um and you know that they wouldn't be able to sort of tweak it, tweak the vaccine to include this strain like you do with flu flu vaccines where you have multiple strains and stuff in it. Like it's a lot of unknowns, but it was just basically like, hey, 
this is out there. We need to let's just shut it down now so that we don't have to worry about it. Um, and and hopefully that works. So that's the Danish mink Corona story. Well, and I think there's obviously been, a, and rightly so, you know, a lot of work going on, a lot of coverage of the whole vaccine effort and all these hundreds of millions of doses that we available and we've got it. And I was chatting to somebody this week and, you know, they said, oh, you're a scientist, you know. And I said, I, I hate it when people call me scientist because I'm a pseudo-scientist, as we all know. <laughs> but, but they were saying, oh, well, there's a vaccine. It's fine. You know, what's your view on that? I said, well, my high-level view, and I stress this, immunology is a million miles away from my comfort zone. But the, one of the viruses that cause the common cold is coronavirus. And mm -hmm. how long have common colds been around and how long have we been looking for a cure or a vaccine and we don't have it. And suddenly we're 10 months into a pandemic where we've got, Oh, well, we'll have a vaccine ready by the end of the year. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm, if I was a betting man and I'm not, if I was a betting man, I would bet on not having a vaccine by the end of the year, bearing in mind we're now, you know, start of November, I feel, you know, fairly safe. I'd make my money back. But I, I, I do worry that, you know, out there we are pinning a lot of hopes on, oh, well, we'll have a vaccine and this is how life will, you know, everyone will get vaccinated and it will go away. I, and I just, I don't see that because we know that the common cold and influenza mutates every every year, you know, mm -hmm. less than a year. And suddenly we're pinning all our hopes on it. And I, I just, don't get me wrong, I think it can help and I think it will help reduce the risk and there'll be certain groups that benefit from it. But as we've seen, you know, I, are mink the only species that it will jump into and jump out of and mutate on the way? Probably not. I know. I know the sporadic cases of dogs and cats. Mm -hmm, I think. Mm -hmm. I think they've shown it's transmitted one way, but not the other, and vice versa. Um, yeah. And this is a this is an interesting point. Um, I didn't even really think about think about it in that sense that like this could be an ongoing a uh, threat to the vaccine like i mean you brought up a number of things there and i think it's important to note that like i mean one of the reasons we don't have a vaccine for the common cold is just that it's not no one's really tried because it's not economically you know viable nobody really wants a you know it's a cold you don't need a vaccine for it i don't think well, anyone's i think, I think really... you find at least 50 percent of the population that get man flu every year would yeah <laughs> jump on board with it <laughs> But you know what I'm saying, like, and 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 coronaviruses don't don't tend to mutate, as far as I know, don't tend to mutate as much as the flu. So the concern about uh, coronavirus vaccine is not so much that it's like every year you're going to have to develop a new one because of new strains. Although, if it's jumping back and forth between certain animals and and mutating, then yeah, maybe. But I mean, mink farming is one area where that might be a concern. I don't think that's a concern with cats and dogs. Um, but you're right in that we should temper our expectations on when a vaccine is coming and how effective it might be. I did talk about this on a podcast uh, without you, Brad, but the <laughs> the look on your face is actually... Well, <laughs> well you've, been, you've been doing podcasts without me. Oh, shit, he didn't know. <laughs> what? Shocker, shocker. Yeah, um, but the technology that they're using the M the mRNA vaccine, the DNA, the genetic vaccines are the the front runners, and their efficacy we just don't know yet. Um, so 
Yeah. And there's been some hiccups in the trials and actually stat news that I pump all the time on this podcast as a great place to go for any sort of vaccine reporting and biotech reporting and all that stat news, stat magazine. They just released another article saying like, look, at we all need to temper our expectations on when this vaccine will arrive. And yeah. if you listen to the experts, as we all should, they've all been saying quarter two of next year at the earliest before yeah. you would see anything kind of roll out. Now, I know the BioNTech, I think it was BioNTech-Pfizer collaboration. Pfizer, yeah, I think it was Pfizer. Anyway, they did like an open letter recently um, to the population. And I think it was more so to kind of tamp down what Trump it, was saying. It was, it was all the big pharma companies, yeah, basically yeah. saying, yeah, this isn't, this isn't the state of play. Yeah, we're not here yet. Although they did say in that letter that like, if all goes well, we're looking at having um, potentially emergency approval by December, end of November, December, I think was in there. But that's emergency approval. So that would get the vaccine to, you know, healthcare workers and stuff like that. And so, yeah, we just we just don't know. And I think those vac like I said, that open letter, I think, was just more to like kind of a political move without outright saying we're not going to have a vaccine like because obviously they don't want the shareholders to be all upset and stuff <laughs> yeah. it's like you can't the company yeah, can't we come out we, and we say have, we're fucked we're not there yet yeah we don't want millions of people dying but fuck we don't want to upset the investors yeah, so, yeah. but they also don't want to be like they kind of had to be like whatever trump is saying that the vaccine's just around the corner it's not you know so i felt like that they were really walking the line there with that yeah. letter um but again, like if you listen to the experts uh, in this space, guys like Peter Hotez, who's on Twitter, you can find him on Twitter, great vaccine expert that really is all about communication. I mean, Fauci's been saying it. Basically, anyone that's involved with any sort of high level public health in the vaccine effort is like, it's not till like potentially earliest, you know, we're talking, what's the fourth month of the year? April? April, that's May, the one, yeah, yeah. Okay. In most in most calendars, that's the one, right? Um, yeah, next year. So anyway, that's yeah. Some interesting points you raise about you know, like let's say we get a vaccine and then all of a sudden we got to worry about our vaccines no good because these mutant animal strains keep coming back. My yeah. thought on this story was like, I was like, I wonder how this influences people who were like sort of saying that well it's very unlikely that it jumped from bats to human to pangolins to this or you know there was all that conversation about there's no way that this is an animal source it's got to be a lab creation and kind of like putting these arguments forward that like well where would a where would a bat and a pangolin have even met you know in order for that translation to occur which is not a valid that's, argument that's, because that's some sort of sexy nightclub yeah berlin of course it's berlin. <laughs> We've already talked about this. And bats and pangolins don't like wearing masks. They're part of the anti-mask crowd. We've all known this. They're real assholes. Yeah. Yeah, anti-mask. Um, well, mainly because they can't operate the zips because they don't have the opposable thumb. That's right. That's right. If you can zip it for them, maybe they're into it. But yeah, wow. um, It's a, a dumb argument, though, apparently, because like – I. You Google, there's like a paper that came out right after people were saying this, that they were like, we – 
you know, bats dwell in caves and so do pangolins and underground burrows. And here's a picture of, of a bat roost and a pangolin that we've found in our research. We've never published it before because we didn't think it was important. But now people are saying that it's in, unlikely that bats and pangolins would meet ecologically. And so that there's no way that they could, you know, the virus, therefore it must be China, you know, created it. And they were just like, well, here's a paper, here's a picture of them. Uh, so, but I'm, you know, like this just shows you that these, these diseases can jump between species and they do. And when they do, it's a potentially bad situation. So whether it's originally from a bat, like the first time it got into humans, it's bad. And then if it goes into mink, it comes back, it's bad. All the more reason that we should be, you know, stressing zoonotic disease surveillance and the like. Um, and you've all heard me talk about that before. So anywho, shall we move on? Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, well, we say move on. Let's stick with the coronavirus theme and, and move on and stick with the vaccine theme. Cause the other interesting piece of, uh, science news that I came across today was a paper published in, let me look at the journal here, the journal, excuse me, of medical ethics. And the paper is called good reasons to vaccinate mandatory or payment for risk. And basically this paper was done by a um, bioethicist uh, by the name of Julian Savulescu, uh, working at the Center for Practical Ethics, the University of Oxford. He's a philosopher in bioethics, bioethicist, and he's putting forward the idea of incentivizing vaccines. So basically paying people to get a vaccine, right? And I see the look on your face, Brad, mm -hmm. and I'm assuming that the look of some of the listeners' faces might be similar. It's like, that sounds kind of fucked up. And it does, it does sound kind of fucked up. Um, we know that vaccines, in order to be effective, need to reach a certain amount of the population, right? We know this. This is the science behind vaccines. You got to reach that certain level that then protects everybody. Um, with COVID, we don't really know what that's going to be because just as we just described, we don't really know how effective the vaccines are yet. There's still a lot of unknowns as to what vaccine is going to come out and how good it's going to be. But any of the estimates that we're seeing um, and that this guy wrote in his paper, it ranges up to potentially 82% of people would need to have a vaccine in order for it to be effective. So 82%, okay. So they normally, is it normally 60% they say for yeah. herd immunity? And I'm sure he's just poaching the high end of the... At, right. at the estimate and to be i'll be completely honest with people i've downloaded the paper i've gone through most of it but i haven't gone through all of it so i think he's put a range in there but it's just like as an example that would be the high range of what you would need to to vaccine potentially so he's just saying of course vaccines should be voluntary but he's making a case for mandatory vaccines if, and these are the four criteria that he puts out that if these criteria are there, mandatory vaccines might be ethical, might make sense to do. Uh, and that's a grave threat to public health. Uh, if the vaccine is safe and effective, the pros outweigh the cons of any suitable alternative and the level of coercion is proportionate. 
So that level of coercion being proportionate is basically, I think what he's saying is um, the, the incentive that you're offering outweighs the risk, right? Like, so there's like a, a net benefit of getting the vaccine, being vaccinated, and also getting whatever incentive you've put on it, whether it's cash or something else, that overall outweighs the risk, any risk associated with the vaccine. So, you know, this is what you have to consider. Vaccines, of course, are not 100% safe. They're one well, of I was our- say, Sorry, I was gonna say, so uh, is he arguing we need to incentivize this because because it's there is a higher risk involved? No. Or he's just saying actually we incentivize this to get that high rate of uptake and therefore we're yeah. home dry. Yeah. So he he makes a point to say that um this is this this is only like ethical, like this should only be done if if a vaccine is already available voluntarily. Like you're right. not gonna do this with a vaccine that you wouldn't offer voluntarily. So it has to meet all the safety, you know, um, measures that we would already have in place in society. Uh, it wouldn't be ethical to do something, you know, like, well, we wouldn't, we wouldn't give this voluntarily to the people, but we'll pay you to get it because, you know, like that, that's not what he's saying at all. And of course, like no vaccine is 100% safe. However, they are some of the safest, you know, most effective interventions we've ever come up with. Um, but if you can accurately quantify the level of risk and, you know, make a good estimation of, you know, it's safe enough and effective enough, like I said, to be offered in a voluntarily, uh, in a voluntary program, um, and you can communicate that to people, you can then accurately say, well, this is a, this is a, a good incentive. Like this is an appropriate incentive. Um, and he, he points out like a couple of other like mandatory safety measures just to be like, to try and build the argument as philosophers do, you know, they go through step by step and really try and build out this argument. So the idea of just like, before we even get to incentives, the idea of a mandatory, public health measure um and he brings up you know of course seat belts that's the one we all go to you know seat belts are mandatory you get penalized for not wearing a seat belt and it's you know we've all accepted that because it reduces risk and mortality for everybody um the other one he brings up that i never really thought of is military conscri conscription which is something that society okay. has done many times and it's the ultimate you know, that's the ultimate risk. You would, you could say risk reward, you know, in the case of say world war two or something like this, where it's like, if we don't fight, you know, our country will be taken over, blah, blah, blah. But you're putting yourself, you know, you're basically signing these people up for like, what, like a 50, 50 chance of dying or, a you know, <laughs> but society has done these things. Right. So it's not unheard of that we have these, mandatory sort of measures that we put in for the good of everyone. Um, and then to, to talk about incentives, he uses the example of paying people to do risky jobs, you know? Okay. Yeah. So yeah. you, 
if you make the incentive enough that compensates the the risk and people are proper, properly constant, uh, compensated, then it's not you're not um, coercing people, you're not taking advantage of people, you know, you're not taking advantage of the poor. We'll say something like that. It's like there's there's an act there's a there's a balanced risk reward there, right? So so hold on. So actually, that's an interesting part of this argument, though, of actually. You know, as we've seen, actually in the U.S., but we've seen in the rest of the world. But actually, I know the U.S. have published quite a lot on this. Actually, where we've seen coronavirus have the more devastating effect is in the poorer community mm-hmm. because they feel people are living in closer quarters, more inclined. So actually, well, less healthcare, whatever you know, a lot of factors. Yeah. Right, but actually, then are you right then to incentivize it for those groups? Because actually, the poorer groups probably are more likely. Well, hold on, you're going to give me money for this well yeah okay i'm, I'm gonna do that because i need the money mm-hmm. so actually then it's an interesting dilemma of well actually that's the group that actually if we if we can target a large population of this large demographic where it is really prevalent as a disease actually is that is the incentive then worth it that's mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well it gets interesting at that point it does and you know, like he says, it's it's not coercion as long as it's communicated correctly. You know, as long as like everything right. is on the table of like, this is the risk, which in this case, again, we're talking about a vaccine that would already be offered voluntarily. Like he, he mentions, this is like plan B. It's like, if you can't get enough people to voluntarily do right. the vaccine, then. then this could be a way of upping your numbers, you know, incentivizing people to do something that, you know, for whatever reason they don't want to do, but overall is safe, you know, to a level that you've deemed and you're giving them an yeah. appropriate level to, 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 to sort of balance their risk. So, so basically you're saying, let me jab you with a small prick for money. Well, there's a portion of people out there in a certain industry already <laughs> that do that on a regular basis. And flash, put themselves so. at risk to disease to do so. Yeah. Yeah. There yeah. we go. Yeah. So the, well, one of the quotes that he has is, uh, payment isn't about coercion, uh, is what he's insisting here with this quote. And he says, uh, quote, if a person chooses that option, it's because they believe that overall their life will get better with it. In this case, with the vaccination and the payment. So you're not like, I guess the point is that you're not like forcing them to do it and you're not really coercing them to do something that is against their better you know, it's not against their health. It's not going to put them at risk. You're providing them an incentive that, you know, maybe they don't think the vaccine alone is enough to benefit their life. It's not going to harm them, but it's not enough yeah. to, you know, to go out and get out of their way to, to do it or whatever. But with that payment, then you're, the whole package becomes, oh, okay, well, now you've just tipped the scales into the favor of doing it. So, um, yeah, it was kind of interesting. Um, well, and the, so it's interesting. Well, it's interesting on several levels. But so a friend of mine, his dad was a, a GP in the UK, a general practitioner. So I know different countries have different health. So basically in the UK, the way the way the healthcare system works is you you have your general practitioner, and that's who you go to for all your medical ailments. And then if you go and they actually, well, actually you need to see a specialist for cancer on or orthopedics or yeah. dermatology, they'll refer you, but he's your go-to. He in North America that you would say like your family doctor. 
Right. Okay. So um, in German, it's the Hausarts. Right. Uh, well, I know some Germans. countries are very much, you don't do that. You just go, well, actually, I've got a skin condition, so I'll go and see a dermatologist. But yeah. anyway. Yeah. So his dad was a, a GP and a big a partner in a big GP practice. And I remember talking to him. So in, I think the UK have been the biggest proponent of this, but I know it's also been a global problem of the whole, the MMR vaccine. So uh, measles, mumps, and rubella. So th- there was a paper published that was since retracted where it basically said there was a link between the MMR vaccine and autism. Mm -hmm. Um, And it had a devastating effect in the UK of parents putting their children forward for this vaccine. Um, And to the point of those three diseases, measles, mumps, and rubella, seeing a massive spike in in cases um, because of it, because parents were like, well, actually, no, hold on, I'm not going to give my child this vaccine if they're going to get autism. Mm-hmm. As I said, this paper was later then retracted, and the author is at least been sued. I'm not sure if it's even gone to Wakefield, the criminal right? level. Yeah, he's like yeah. lost his license. and Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so a massive thing. But I remember talking to him about general practice in general, pardon the expression. But he, so the way that, at the time, and I don't know if it's still the same, this was probably about 10 years ago, he was saying the way he got paid was based on the uptake of vaccines. So for him to get paid and reimbursed by the state, he had to vaccinate 90% of the people eligible on his books, mm-hmm. which he said for any other vaccine, it was mandatory, tetanus or whatever, not a problem. Yeah. He said, but from the MMR vaccine, that's a massive problem. So he said, then the government are basically saying, well, we're not going to give you any extra money, but we're expecting you to publicize this, to refute all the allegations, to yeah. really push this. And if you do that, you might hit 90% and therefore you might get your money back and we might pay you yeah. to, do, to do your job. And that's smacks a little bit of this. You would hope that most people would go, oh, coronavirus, hold on, we've had... Yeah, two lockdowns for that. It's a devastating effect. Of course, I'm going to have that vaccine, but I think there is a large population out there that would actually say mm, vaccine. Yeah, not to the anti-vax vaxes level, but to the level of mm, actually, you've kind of rushed this vaccine through. I'm right. going to wait. So yes, it might be safe and it might be approved and whatever. I'm going to wait. So actually, it's an maybe. interesting concept to dangle yeah. that carrot. And, and rather than pay the GP that carrot, maybe you pay it to the person. Well, and I think paying it to the person makes more sense because when you when people hear that a doc that the doctor is being incentivized to give them the vaccine, then that just feeds into the rumors of they're trying to fucking vaccinate me against my. You know, there's this secret thing going on where the doctors exactly. get paid to give me this shot. The government wants me to get it, and they're paying doctors to give it to us. You know, like it feeds Why into that whole the narrative. Put the vaccine into chemical into aviation fuel, right? And just like you're, you're saying some kind of a spray, some kind of a trail. Can't control a lot of us. Yeah, <laughs> and there you go. Um, hey, if it worked, it worked. But um, well, if it does, flash again. Whack that in an envelope. Send it to us. Yeah, <laughs> that is our idea. Patent yeah, patent pending. Yeah, back away, people. That's our idea. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, you know, he does mention in his paper specifically that, you know, you're not going to reach the anti-vaxxers with this. It's not it's not about that. Those people are already like they're not. There's probably no level of money that you can give them that will 
that will get them to to take it. It's it's no, not exactly. about that. Yeah. But it's like you said, there is probably some people that for whatever reason, um, maybe it's just they're like, I don't want to take the time out of my day. You know, it, it's it's you know, I got to take the bus all the way to the pharmacy or to the doctor to make an appointment to get the shot, and that's time out of my day. I already work, you know, 10 hours a day, you know, like all these things, right? Like there could be a number of, any number of reasons that people are vaccine hesitant, not anti-vax. Anti-vax are going to do what anti-vax are going to do, but vaccine hesitant, we'll say. And like you mentioned too, oh, this thing's been rushed, maybe this, maybe that, you know, but again, we're talking about something here. Let me do one last quote from this guy, because I think it kind of sums it up a, a bit better. Um, and we can kind of wrap it up from there. But the quote is, if a vaccine were deemed to be safe enough to offer on a voluntary basis without payment, it must be safe enough to incentivize with payment because the risks are reasonable. It may be that those who are poorer may be more inclined to take the money and the risk, but this applies to all risky or unpleasant jobs in a market economy. It is not necessarily exploitation if there are protections in place, such as a minimum wage, or in this case, a fair price is paid to take on the risk. And that makes sense to me, you know, like that's really philosopher, you know, I'm covering all my bases with my argument speak, but it it does make sense to me. And then he goes on to to cite some um, economic figures that, you know, again, depending on, and I didn't, this, you know, I didn't dig into all the, the numbers that he was actually, you know, putting out because we don't, I don't know what he's saying the, the appropriate price for a vaccine would be. And we don't know because we don't know what the risks of the new coronavirus vaccine are. Um, but it could be cheaper than what, for example, the UK is currently spending like 60 billion on, um, furlough on the furlough program for you know all the businesses that are shut down and stuff because of a because of the pandemic uh, that's a lot if you were again you put a number on what you you know if it's 10 pounds or whatever it is for the vaccine and you need 82 percent like you could you could see how it could come in less than 60 billion um he put he mentions other precedent precedents of in, incentivizing civic duty so paying for blood donations you know, something that's already done right in the US yeah. yeah is it done in Canada or not i think you get paid for plasma in canada potentially right but not blood um right and he he did mention that the uk doesn't pay for blood but they import blood from places that do pay um and he said you could also set up another incentive besides cash you know you could People that get vaccinated don't have to follow the social distancing rules. They don't have to wear a mask, you know, like all these other things you could do. You could also set up a system where if you don't need the cash and you're going to get vaccinated anyway, you could donate it back to the health system to get like an altruistic motive for it. So it's like the incentive doesn't necessarily have to be cash, but putting some kind of incentive on it kind of makes sense. And I do, like, I didn't, you know, I think it, I really think it makes more sense to give it to the person rather than the doctor. I didn't, I didn't think about the doctor thing until you brought it up, but I think that's a, that's an, would go, I think it would work better Yeah. to give um, it to the person rather than the doctor. Yeah. I, I, Vaccine hesitant people are going to, like, when they hear that about the doctor, I know I already said it, but, you know, like, they're going to be like, eh, the doctor's well, it's, it's getting paid to do this to me. 
I guess ultimately is there a push me pull you approach? So you've got the the pull me of the the doctor being incentivized, and you know they're going to work for it. But then you have to is, do you have to put more of an incentive to the GP? So you just can't say to the doctor, well you'll get paid if you do this. Do you have to say you'll get paid, but we'll also give you a bursary to advertise this and to publicize this, right, and right, 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 whatever. And then the push me approach is, but we'll also incentivize the patient. You know, there'll be a cash reward or a voucher reward or, yeah. you know, whatever whatever else it is. It's yeah, it's an interesting dilemma. When you first, when we were in, I always love saying it. When we when we were in pre production, it makes it sound really grand. When we were basically opening our beer and topping up our glasses before we started recording. And you you mentioned this. It's like, well, this this is quite clear cut. What you know, that's just ethically wrong to you know be promoting it. But actually, we already do it on some level already. Mm -hmm. So why not just flip that model and you know, rather than pay this person, pay this person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, like I said, there's a number of examples where we have mandatory health things that we already do. Uh, we have or we already incentivize some you know civic duty stuff like this. So. Yeah, interesting, interesting concept. Yeah, very much so. And I'm done. Well, okay, right. Well, shit, Brit <laughs> Brad, better pick up the slack there then. So, um, Brit Brad has obviously been away for a little while, and uh, you know, to really emphasise how much he's been away, he'd done uh, not as much research as he should. But I think um, we touched on it. Um, well, it must have been twelve months ago. Mm -hmm. uh, we did we did an episode on the Nobel Prizes. Mm -hmm. So actually, Nobel Prizes were um, announced last month, the end of last month. Mm -hmm. um, and when this popped into my newsfeed, I thought it'd be good to pick up on. So I wanted to. I thought I'd highlight the main ones. You know, literature and economics. Who really cares? Yeah. Um, we're about si we're about science. So let's talk about science. So um, really, it's a shout out. Um, to those that have won Nobel Prizes, not that they haven't been shut out enough. You know, they've won a Nobel Prize and got the medal and got cash, but... Well, they've been um, waiting for to... the two bread for you acknowledgement, of course. Well, exactly. Yeah, this... Effectively, it's the icing on the cake. Yeah, yeah. You know, Other they, than the Nobel the Prize itself. Yeah. This and is what this, you look for. This is what it's about. So, um, firstly, so as we, we've talked about Nobel Prizes and how they came about, if you want to hear about that, go and search through our podcast and Alfred Nobel, really interesting character and uh, how it came about was basically because his obituary got published uh, while he was still alive and he didn't like it. Literally didn't like it, crapped himself and changed his life, which is an interesting moral for all of us. But anyway, um, Nobel Prizes were announced uh, last month. Uh, so the recap really, so Nobel Prize for Medicine and Physiology um, first. So this was split between three people. Uh, so it went to uh, Harvey Alter, Michael Houghton or Houghton, depending on uh, how you want to pronounce that, and Charles Rice. Uh, and basically their award was for the discovery of hepatitis C. So... Oh, thanks, guys. Yeah, well, and thanks when I first read that... that one out. <laughs> yeah, a little bit late to the party. Surely the clue was, well, there's A and B. Yeah. C's <laughs> not a big leap. Um, but actually, at the, at the time, it was. So... At the time, um, in the 1940s, um, there had been shown to be two types of hepatitis. So there was one type that was being shown to come from pollutants, so water or food, 
but there was this other type that people hadn't put their finger on. And then eventually in the 70s, I think around about 76, um, well, 76 is when actually the um, a guy called Bloomberg was awarded the Nobel Prize for his work on hepatitis B, who showed that hepatitis B actually was bloodborne. Mm. Um, and now there's vaccines and whatever. Um, but hepatitis but B then, had previously been categorized as with hepatitis, with the pollutant one. So we knew there was hepatitis. Yeah. Um, and in the 40s, as early as the 40s, we knew that there were two types. There was this bloodborne version. Ah, okay. And there, and there was this foodborne natural pollutant okay. version. Okay. So you start screening for that, and obviously vaccines have been. And so hepatitis A is quite short lived. You diagnose it, you can manage it, and it, that's fine, is my understanding. Hepatitis B, a lot more serious. But actually, once it was identified, then there's now a vaccine. Yeah. And, you know, as we talked about, vaccines are brilliant, they're the savior of the world. So that's fine. What they actually then discovered is, well, actually, we're still seeing cases. We're vaccinating at hepatitis B. We're screening for hepatitis B in blood transfusions, but we're still seeing hepatitis. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Um, and effectively, it was due to hepatitis C. So right. um, their their discovery, these three people, basically have led to the fact of increased screening uh, for this. And it's basically dramatically cut the number of hepatitis cases through bloodborne transmission because now we've developed really sensitive tests for it mm -hmm. and ultimately then treatments for it and then potentially ultimately vaccines for it. Right. And hepatitis C is also fluid transmission, right? Blood. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah but yeah. it's not, you don't get it from sex, right? Uh, that is a very good question. I think you can. I think you can. I think you can. You, you ask a good question, and I'm scrolling through my notes here. It's fluid. It's bloodborne. I would... Oh, okay. As I said, I'm, it's, it's, I'm not a betting man. I just I'll looked it on. up. I just looked it up. Uh, apparently, it's blood-to-blood -blood contact only. So I know it's like prevalent in uh, drug needle drug-using communities. Um, okay. But only sexual activities that would increase the potential exposure for blood to blood. Well, I was going to say, <laughs> right. I was gonna say it depends on your sexual preference. Well, yeah. That, well, so. and this is, it's actually kind of a, I guess an important thing to note is that it is. Um, so for heterosexual relationships low, but in uh, men sleeping with men, there is a larger potential for blood to blood transmission. Okay. As you so can see. That, there we go. And, you know, fortunately, we're socially distanced with about 600 miles between us, Flash, probably even more than that. Mm. Um, so there's no risk of hepatitis C spreading between us. No. Right now, at least. <laughs> um, so so th that was the Nobel Prize for Medicine and Physiology. Um, so congratulations to those three people. Um, so Harvey Alter, Michael Houghton, Houghton, and Charles Rice. Um, the next Nobel Prize I wanted to cover was the Nobel Prize of Physics, which, Flash, you and I, we know we love physics. Whoa, 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 just... wait, 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 wait. Let me, um, Ooh. was it Penrose? Ooh, look at you throwing out the, th yes, it was. Nice. So Roger Penrose. So Roger. Uh, well, he shared it. He shared oh, okay, it. He, he shared it. it by himself. Well, I don't know who the other person was. Uh, two people, three people shared it. So, um, so you're right. Yeah. So Roger Penrose, who's based at the University of Oxford, um, he shared his award with two others. So he, 
He got his share of the award for, and I quote, the discovery that black hole formation is not a robust prediction of the general theory of relativity. Yeah, yeah, it went against some Einstein shit, right? Um, it didn't, it didn't. So, um, but we'll come on to that. The other two people that got it were Reinhard uh, Genzel and Andrea Gies, or Gies, G-H-E-Z, Z. Andrea. Um, yeah, so they, right, they shared their award. Yeah, well done. Uh, they got their award for the discovery of the supermassive compact object at the center of our galaxy. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. So, um, turns out it's a giant squid. It was just a speck on the screen. They spat on the screen and cleaned it off. Yeah, no, it's fine. <laughs> No, there's um, a giant octopus at the center of the universe. Everybody knows that, and its tendril arms go out and make all the galaxies. Well, that's one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is that God clapped his hand and there was a universe. But anyway, um, so Sir so Roger, uh, Roger Penrose, basically he piggybacked is the wrong word, but he, he took Einstein's theory and then added one, mm -hmm. actually. So what he showed is the general theory of relativity leads to the formation of black holes. Right. Um, and then, as we talked about, Reinhard Genzel and Andrea, uh, and I, I I looked up how you pronounce Andrea's surname, but it's G-H-E-Z, I'll, I'll say Jehez, uh, discovered that an invisible but extremely heavy object governs the orbits of the stars at the center of our ga galaxy, um, and a supermassive black hole is the only current explanation. Now, it might be that that's not, not what it is, but it... That's kind of creepy to think that there's like, we found like that there's this giant mass, whatever it is, that like everything is kind of rotating around. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of creepy. Like, and it seems like it's like the perfect thing for humans to be like, well, we got to send a ship there. Well, we got to figure that out. <laughs> and you're going to send yeah, exactly. people there and it's going to be something like totally fucked up and it's not going to, you know, science fiction horror movie. You get there and it, you know, warps time and reality. It's actually a portal to hell. What was that movie? Event Horizon? <laughs> you know, that, the shitty 90s movie that terrified me when I was a kid. But uh, it's kind of weird that it's just like, look at there's this just big lump out there that's pulling everything around it because it's just exactly. so heavy. So, so big. Yeah. The yeah center exactly. of the yep. universe. So when I, when I first looked up, Oh, you know, I, I started getting, you know, they don't match them all on the same day. They stagger them. And I started getting, you know, Oh, this person has been awarded this prize. And so then I, I dug into it. And what I really, what really attracted me to this, this story, which is how I logged into it. And was the giant mass the at the center of the air, uh, universe. No, it wasn't. No, no, it wasn't the supermassive black hole, which you I was know, saying it I'm, pulls everything in toward it. That was my joke. I'm drawn to supermassive black holes, as you know, Flash. But no, what really got me was at, so you mentioned so Roger, so Roger Penrose. Um, so there was an interview with him, and it, it basically said, if you ever if you ever struggle with maths, you're in good company with Sir Roger Penrose. So um, he basically said he was always very slow, but he was good at maths. Um, but he didn't necessarily do well at tests. Hmm. Um, so, but, and I think this is amazing. Um, and I quote, but the teacher realized if he gave me enough time, I would do well. I basically had to do everything by working out, but from first principles. So basically 
he gave me a little bit of confidence because I'm the same as him. I'm, I did physics at A level in in the UK and I loved it, but I was terrible at it. Mm-hmm. And the reason I was terrible at it in tests, at least, not just because I'm terrible at physics, was because I'm not brilliant at maths. And there was twelve of us in my physics class, and I was the only one that didn't do A level maths. Mm. And a lot of physics is around math. So we would get given a physics problem. 11 others in the class would churn through the maths quite quickly because they're doing it 66% of the time that week. Yeah. Whereas I wasn't. So I would literally have to go back to first principles and work it all the way through. And by the time I'd done that, I'd run out of time to actually give the answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel your pain. So when I read, yeah, so when I, I read this, it, it struck a chord. It also struck a chord because he's Canadian. Um, oh, Penrose is Canadian? Um, the lessons, well, he was in Canada. Yeah. I'm guessing he's obviously not Canadian because he's got a knighthood. But, um, yeah, I don't think we're allowed to get knighthood. No. You, well, you, you can you can have an honorary knighthood, but it, that doesn't confer down to your, your children afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, he went on to become a star of mathematics at UCL, uh, University College London, and then uh, Cambridge, where he went on to do a PhD. Um but it just really struck a chord for me. Somebody that now is a you know Nobel Prize laureate, which is you know in science, you know potentially one of the highest accolades, if not the highest accolades you can have, is openly said on record he wasn't the best at this. But you know he had a teacher in him that believed, and I teachers rightly or wrongly get a hard press. But I think in this case, you know that to me was inspirational that he's turned around and said, well actually without that teacher, would he or wouldn't have been where he is now? And I, I think that's. I mean, good teachers are they you know at a lot of a lot of these high success stories when you look back there'll be a story about uh, a good teacher that helped them along the way you know and yeah. i think teachers do deserve a shout out my brother's a teacher a good teacher and you know they can really make a difference and we should appreciate our teachers our good yeah, ones anyway yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and then um, Reinhard and Andrew that um, also shared the prize. Um, really, what they did is they used the world's largest telescopes, but they developed a method to see through the interference. So the, the interstellar gases that got in the way, you know, when you're looking this far into the galaxy, there's a lot of stuff that gets in the way. And actually, what they did was using this telescope, developed a technique to compensate for the interference or the distortion that those mm-hmm. gases and items clues to be able to look to see, well, actually, evidence suggests that there is this supermassive black hole at the center of the galaxy, which kind of backs up um, a lot of, you know, the physics that, you know, we're ba- we base everything on, mm-hmm. um, which, yeah, Nobel Prizes are fascinating to me. And then, you know, the next, you know, we've we've got medicine and physiology, so that's your biology. Mm-hmm. You've got your physics, so obviously the one that's missing is chemistry. Um, and this, for me, was an interesting one um, because we've talked about this several times on the podcast. So uh, this was shared between two, um, two scientists, so Emmanuel uh, Charpentier and Jennifer Dudena. Um, and basically what they discovered was the CRISPR, Hmm. tool so the the genome editor um, that hadn't already won no oh wow okay and they got Um, it for chemistry biochemistry obviously yeah uh so you know it's obviously had a 
massive impact on life sciences in general, new cancer therapies, genetic disease therapies, you know, this, this has really been groundbreaking. So, um, yeah, uh, Charpentier uh, published her discovery in 2011. Um, and then in the same year, she went into this collaboration with Jennifer Dudner, um, who was a biochemist with, um, you know, expertise in RNA and together they have built on this and, you know, so many, so many modern therapies that are out there now are based on CRISPR and so many of the therapies that are coming or in regulatory review yeah. or diagnostic review are all based on this technology. And, um, you know, scientists don't always get, you know, okay, you know, they, they get, they get the Nobel medal and they get a cash award, but the majority of scientists out there aren't doing it for that. They're doing it for the furthering of science and because they're just, encouraged and they want to do things because of their love of science and i i think we don't give that enough credit in the world let alone in this country alone you know uh, you've been i've not been through a phd flash i know you have and i know they're not they're not easy to come by and they're not easy to work through mm. and, I, and i don't think we fund them fully enough um because they're effectively the backbone of science that we build upon um so i'd like to give a a virtual round of applause from Two Brad for you to the the winners of all the Nobel prizes, not just chemistry, jazz, snaps. physics, jazz. Snaps. Oh, I love what you've done there. <laughs> and medicine, physiology, you know, all the the Nobel prizes, and to all the scientists out there, because you do a lot of work that isn't always recognised. Um, so I I doff my virtual cap to you all. I mean, yeah. What more can you say? Where would we be without it? So we're obviously you know, big fans and uh, you could say bias, but I really don't, how, how can you not be on board with science? Come on. No, exactly. Either you're on board with science or you're a loser. Yeah. Or you're a Luddite. Well, that as well. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, cool. Thanks for the roundup. Cause I didn't, uh, I didn't know that CRISPR hadn't won. I had heard that Penrose had won and I didn't know that there was a giant, fucking blob at the middle of the universe that's you know sitting there it's kind of creeping me out right now but <laughs> all well, right no, don't, don't let you it's fine i think we've still got around about 3.9 million years before you know the sun goes supernova and we all die so yeah yeah you know unless and we're still you know. expanding away from this mass though you know the universe is still expanding right so that mass right. isn't pulling us in yet their evidence suggests that it's the rotation of the stars. Like everything's kind of orbiting around this. For the time being. That's bizarre. Or it's like, this is where the big bang started. Yeah. The origin of the big bang is the big hole. What comes out of the big hole? Big old bang. And I thought it was just me that made the shitty jokes on this podcast. It's not even a joke, it man. Seems, That's an observation. That's a straight up fact. <laughs> it seems in my it seems in my absence, uh, while being the man of mystery for the last few months, uh, you've uh, you've adopted some of my traits. So thank you, Flash. So um, do you want me to summarise where we've been on this uh, this journey? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, well, firstly, I, I apologise, listener. I've been a man of mystery. I've been absent for a while. Um, Flash has basically been a, a podcast fluffer <laughs> for the last few months. Um, but I'd implore you all to go and have a, a listen. Uh, 
especially the in conversation shows. I, re I really enjoy listening to those. Um, so I'd, I'd ask all the listeners. Um, that we don't know how many of you are. There's millions because obviously we've we've you we've know declared said, it. We've declared it. We've stopped counting, and that's fine. <laughs> um, coronavirus is still here. We don't think it's going to go anywhere any quickly. You know, keep an eye on your media outlets as well as us. But obviously, you know, we will keep you informed. Once once coronavirus is gone, we will let you know. Yeah. Um, and if you see a mink, but kill it. it. Yeah, basically, minks need to be terminated. So be a mink terminator. Yeah. Be be more Arnie. Do your part. Um, yeah, and I, I, you know, I don't want to incite violence, but I'd also question anyone wearing mink. You maybe want to incinerate them as well, but. I, you know. That was an interesting angle that we didn't get to is that the animal rights activists were some animal rights activists were actually applauding this, which you would think that really? they wouldn't want all the mink to die. But I think they viewed it as a death knell for the industry that like if all of if this gets wiped out, maybe the industry. Well, so so if, yeah, if, we make, if we make the mink extinct, then we do away with the fur well, trade. Yeah, it, what a brilliant idea that not is. Not the mink, the, all, not all minks will go extinct, but the mink farms. Uh, okay. Because I guess that's obviously that would be where the risk for transmission would be because they're all packed together. It's just like birds, right. avian flu, blah, 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 all that stuff. Swine flu. Anyway. Like, like you don't us have having family gatherings and things. No, that's fine. So, yeah, coronavirus is still there. Keep an eye on it. Um, oh, we, well, what we didn't touch on, and let's roll this over because I know we're at time. Um, but fusion versus fission. I know we've touched on it before, mm. but it's within grasp but allegedly well let's leave that as a teaser, a teaser. But, you know seven seven years in development and 55 million pounds is a very strong bet that maybe it's here but um let's pick that up next time uh so yeah coronavirus is still here Nobel prizes round of applause uh they'll be back this time next year we'll cover that again um and i'm almost out of alcohol yeah so what better way to finish the show yeah sounds good Hey, great! Okay, it's been uh, a pleasure, man. It's been it's been a blast. The well, we had a, a slight technical difficulty in halfway in between, which Fast is going to edit You'll, out with his skills. Had you not said it, no one would ever notice. It, well, they'll never know. You can edit that, but nobody will ever know. Um, but yeah, if you, as always, uh, I know, and I know because I get the notifications, even though I've not been around, that some of you have been contacting the show, which um, I have to admit fills my heart with a little bit of joy. Um, so you can contact the show at Too Brad For You on Twitter. Uh, it's the same on Instagram as well. Uh, if you want to get in touch with me, Britt Brad, that's uh, at Bradley W. Hayes on Twitter. Uh, Flash, if they want to tickle your taste buds and get to fluff you, how do they do that? Happy Vampiridon. Everybody knows at this point. Well, you, that's probably what you drone on about, isn't it? In all your shows, mm -hmm. just for hours and hours on end. There's no actual content. It's just you just reciting that over and over That's right. and over. Yeah. Much like your love making technique flash, but you know, it works for you. Who am I to criticize? Hey, all. Hey, all. They're all here. Welcome back listeners. Um, flash. We've already said it's been a pleasure listeners. I apologize. It won't be so long. Um, we've got plans potentially back in December. Well, Flash will be back before that. He's already told me he's got a load of content lined up, but I hopefully will be slotted into that content somewhere. It's true. Anytime. This show always has time for the second Brad. Well, I would hope so. It's called Two Brad for That's You. Right. It's 
Yeah, it's you know open invite. It's not one Brad for We're you. We're always yeah, open invite for the co-host to come back at any time and co-host. It's always better when we're together. Well, hey, that is very true. That is true in so many walks in life, but none more so in the podcast life of Two Brad for you. <laughs> all right, thank you all for listening. Yeah, thank you, all of you, the millions of you. And uh, yeah, next time we speak, maybe we'll have a, a new president of the free world to uh, to announce. Or we'll all be dead. Let's see. Bye. <laughs> Stay safe, listeners, and uh, we'll catch you on the flip side. Cheers, Flash. Take care. Yeah, I suppose. Uh, some sometimes, you know, there's just not good outtakes, you know, and I'm not going to force it if it's not there. Well, the number of girls I've said that to, but you know. <sighs> wow, <laughs> nothing's changed. It's been a while, but nothing's changed. Uh, well, they've said that to me as well. <laughs> I'm going to open up this beer in reserve. Get it so up. that we don't. I like so it. we don't have the okay. I'm- the sound on oh, the... Oh, no, I think we should use that sound. Yeah, maybe. You use that Let's sound. see if I picked it up. You use that sound, I'll use this sound. Listen. And that's not me peeing to anyone listening. That's <laughs> 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 my wine rest. I was going to say, Too that doesn't sound healthy. Yeah. Who doesn't have a cold <laughs> shower while listening to a podcast? It's for Trump. <laughs> <laughs> There we go. That's better. You ready to roll? Yeah. Uh, what order are we doing this in? Oh, fuck. That's good. Yeah. Good. <laughs> good call. <laughs> um.